We're continuing our series in the Minor Prophets and uh, we've arrived at this one. And I'm really looking forward to this. So I hope you are as well. American writer Warren Wearsby wrote a little book on Habakkuk and he called it From Worry to Worship. So I pinched his title because I couldn't think of a better one. Just listen to the very first paragraph. Wearsby says, Have you ever looked at the events in the world and wondered, what is God doing? Have you ever been perplexed about injustice, war, murder, drunkenness, and a host of other problems in our sick society? Have you, have you ever been worried because the world that you are li- about the world that you are living in? If so, then you should meet the prophet Habakkuk. This little book of three short chapters tells us how to move from worry to worship. Well, let me ask you, do you ever feel perplexed about the state of the world? I thought as a little exercise I would put together a little montage here of headlines. Uh, All of these headlines are from one particular broadsheet newspaper since we met last Sunday. All of these headlines are current. And just this week there are stories here of violence, theft, adultery, murder... Political leaders abusing their power, priests abusing their children, bankers feathering their nests, journalists invading people's privacy, cyberbullying on the internet, old people neglected in hospitals. It is a sorry tale of shame, depression and tragedy. I'm not sure who it was who coined the phrase, ignorance is bliss. But you would have to go through life with your eyes closed if you want to avoid trouble and pain and difficulty. Is that not true? Well, we come to this prophet uh, Habakkuk. And um, just by way of introduction here, shall I dim one light? Is that slightly better? Habakkuk is the story of one godly man struggling with the pain of a perplexing world. Last week we were thinking about the prophet Micah, if you can remember. Uh, Here we're about a hundred years further on than the prophet Micah. So this is around 600 BC. And yet this little book, so obscure is bang up to date because his world was no different to our world. Habakkuk, like Micah, was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah, which was in a desperate state morally. The northern kingdom, as as predicted by Micah, has been carried off into exile by the Assyrians. But Judah has seen, in the intervening years, great moral reform since Micah's day, maybe as a result of Micah's prophetic preaching. 
under a good king called King Josiah, Judah experienced a kind of revival. And as the northern kingdoms carried off, Josiah leads the country in a return to God. But as soon as Josiah died, everything went back to being worse than it had been before Josiah even became king. It seems that the reforms that had happened were very superficial, very skin deep, and people's hearts were still very far from God. And as Habakkuk looks out across the nation of Judah, it is in a very dreadful state. Warren Wearsby's uh, little book on Habakkuk from Worry to Worship is very interesting. He, he actually traces um, Habakkuk's journey from worry to worship. Uh, in chapter 1, Habakkuk is very low. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he climbs the watchtower. It says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. He gets a little bit higher. By the time you get to the end of chapter 3, Habakkuk says, The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. By the end of the book, he's in the mountain. So he starts in chapter 1, very, very low. In chapter 2, he's on his watchtower. By chapter 3, he's on the mountaintop. You could draw almost a line through the whole book to see how Habakkuk moves from despair to discovery, from fear to faith and from worry even to worship I think Habakkuk is a book that's very real and it never shies away from facing this tragic world as it really is but Habakkuk never loses sight of God like Hosea that we were thinking about in the first minor prophet of our little series Hosea was called by God to marry an unfaithful wife. It was a picture of the unfaithfulness of Israel. And like Hosea, Habakkuk is not just a spectator or a commentator, but he is living in this period of time, experiencing all the despair and the depravity of a nation that's forsaken its God. So this book is truly the struggle of a godly man to make sense of the world around him. And in that way, it's a challenge for us. And as we think about this, I'm, I'm sure you can be with me in this. Many people feel that the existence of suffering and pain is an evidence that there is no God. If suffering and evil exist, how can there be a God? Other people want to believe in God and so they deny the reality of the pain or try to hide from it. But the truth is, biblically, and it's true here in Habakkuk, that God does exist and pain does exist. And this book is all about Habakkuk grappling with those two realities in tension. This is a man who isn't walking through life with his eyes closed, but he's wanting to move through life with his eyes wide open. There is a sense, isn't there, that these questions really are only relevant to people like Habakkuk who do believe. Because the existence of evil isn't really a problem if there is no God, is it? If there is no God, good and evil are meaningless. What is, simply is. 
Someone who doesn't believe in God doesn't need to grapple with life in the way that Habakkuk did. Because if there, if there is no God, it's all meaningless anyway. Sometimes I get a little tired when I hear atheists who say that belief in God is some kind of wishful thinking or a crutch for needy people. Some of us went to a debate in Manchester recently. Peter Atkins, professor of chemistry at Oxford University, and a very prominent atheist here in the UK, said over and over again that he would never come to faith because he felt it was the easy option. I wanted to grab him metaphorically by the scruff of the neck and say, faith in God is not the easy option. Actually, if you believe in God, you have a massive problem. Belief in God forces a person to open their eyes and grapple seriously with the existence of suffering. Sometimes that's a theoretical grappling. Sometimes it's an intensely personal grappling. What happens when trouble happens to you? Then it's not an armchair thing where you're grappling with some theoretical question. But it's happening to you. Habakkuk is the story of one man's struggle. And how he moved from worry to worship. And I really hope that we'll learn something deep and significant as we think about Habakkuk. I want to say as well at the outset that Habakkuk is, is an enormously underrated book. It is influential beyond its small size. And it's a book that has been tremendously influential in shaping even our very culture. Why do I say that? Well, if you, um, we'll come to this again at the end, but if you look at Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, there's a little quotation in there. And it says, The righteous will live by faith. We'll come back to that. You'll know now why Ian read from Romans chapter 1, because Paul quotes it in the New Testament. That verse is arguably the most important verse in the whole of the Old Testament. And here it is in the middle of the prophet Habakkuk. Why do I say that? Because it states in a nutshell the very essence of Christianity. And we know that because Paul quoted it in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. He bases the whole book of Romans in a way on this very phrase from Habakkuk. And that alone should make us alert to the fact that if, if we're going to travel from worry to worship. That the Christian message that Paul preaches in Romans is very crucial to that journey. The reason I say it's influenced our culture is that in 1515 the German theologian Martin Luther was studying this verse in Romans chapter 1 I mean desperately trying to understand what Paul meant and as he did so this verse, this very phrase became the light that dawned on his soul listen to Luther in his own words night and day I pondered till I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God 
justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This verse was a eureka moment for Luther. And as a result of that dawning realisation discovery, Luther turned Europe upside down and reformed uh, the whole evangelical outlook of a continent. In other words, this very phrase from Habakkuk taught Luther how to relate to God, how to gain eternal life and peace and joy and everything else that he needed. And he himself, Luther himself, moved from worry to worship because of this very verse. It's not an exaggeration to say that we wouldn't be here this morning as a Christian church if it wasn't for this verse being quoted by Paul and rediscovered by Luther in the 1500s. So it has shaped our culture. So Habakkuk, three chapters, very influential beyond its small size. By way of overview, uh, these three chapters split into neat sections. I don't know whether you've been reading it during the week. There are two questions and uh, two replies from God in the first two chapters. And then when you get into chapter 3, there's a kind of prayer. Uh, Some people think that this prayer was set to music and and that Habakkuk was a musical uh, guy. So the last chapter we'll get to is is a kind of prayer of praise as he moves towards worship and uh, rises above his anxieties about the world he's living in in this time. So two questions, two answers, and then a prayer of praise and worship. So what we're going to try and do, if you're still with me, is we're going to work through the questions, we'll have a look at the answers that God gives him, and then we'll try and see something of the worship that uh, Habakkuk arrived at in chapter 3. What, what I want to do by the end is try and encapsulate just how crucial this phrase in chapter 2 verse 4 is. That's the key verse really. The righteous will live by faith. It was true for him, it was true for Paul, it was true for Luther, and it's true for us. So hopefully that will be the phrase that you take away that will be ringing in your ears. The righteous will live by faith. Okay, so let's have a look at question one. God, why don't you do something? That's his first question. What on earth are you playing at, God? Look at uh, chapter one and verse two. How long, O Lord, must I cry for help and you don't listen? How long do I have to cry to you violence but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you seem to tolerate wrong? I've been praying for weeks, years, months, and you seem to do nothing. Are you listening, God? Do you ever feel like that? We were saying earlier that these were desperate times for the nation of Judah. I've prayed, but you don't answer me, Lord. I've cried out to you and you just seem to sit there with your arms folded doing nothing. Where are you? 
Habakkuk's first question really is why? 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 Habakkuk's cry here reminds me of the disciples of Jesus in a boat on Lake Galilee. Jesus is asleep and a furious storm comes on and they go to him and they cry out, Lord, save us, we're going to drown, don't you care? Why? You told us to get into this boat and Jesus is asleep. It's like they kick him to wake him up. Don't you care if we drown? That's the cry of Habakkuk. Where are you? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? Why is everything in this country upside down and back to front? The word for cry here is a very strong one. You could translate this word scream. Habakkuk feels like he wants to scream. I'm reminded of the story of a lady whose husband had tragically died and she asked the the hospital chaplain is there anywhere I can go to scream? And the kindly chaplain politely pointed her to the hospital chapel and said you can pray there and she said you didn't hear me. I don't feel like praying. I want to scream. That's Habakkuk. On one level, I really do want you to be encouraged that this kind of grappling is in the Bible. There are times when life is hard. There are times when the world is a troubling place. And there is a place for asking why. Sometimes I think as Christians we're so focused on talking about victory and peace and joy that we make no space for people who are struggling with the reality of a broken world. Habakkuk was a man of faith and this is not the cry of an atheist. It's not the cry of unbelief but it is the scream of a believing man. And the lesson for us from Habakkuk is that we can take our questions to God. He can handle them. And we don't need to stay in the shadows. We can move from worry to worship. But we mustn't underestimate the struggle. And pretend that things are okay. When the reality can be grim. Look at what Habakkuk sees here. The word she uses, injustice, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, conflict, broken legal systems that don't dispense justice. The whole country is in a complete and utter mess. And Habakkuk's cry or scream is why? There's question one. Well, what's God going to answer uh, to such a question? Well, I want to summarise God's answer to the first question as, watch this. That's really the essence of God's answer. I haven't got my arms folded, Habakkuk. I'm not ignoring your prayers. Just watch this. Look at chapter 1 there and verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe even if someone told you. 
I'm raising up the Babylonians. What? What? You're raising up the Babylonians. They are ruthless, impetuous, arrogant and self-serving, fierce and violent. Like the wind, they will blow through Judah and flatten everything in their wake. They'll show no favoritism. They'll be like a steamroller that flattens the whole country. They worship no one. Their God is their own power and strength. And God's answer is, I'm raising them up. Just watch this. I'm not sure that Habakkuk was expecting that answer. Let me just bring this up to date. I don't want to be irreverent. But imagine if you were praying at home. Oh Lord, our country's in a terrible state. Please do something. And God said, okay, I'm going to send another country to bomb you all. Flatten the country. And um, the whole nation's going to be obliterated. Thanks for that, God. That's a great answer. God actually says to Habakkuk, you wouldn't believe it even if someone told you. God, I was hoping for revival. I was hoping you would protect us. I was hoping that you would defend us. So I hope you can see that this answer that God gives him, it gives him an even bigger problem. It gives him an even bigger moral problem. So the, the second question that he asks really is, God, how could you? How could you do such a thing? Habakkuk says here in verse 12, he, he kind of gets the fact that God is bringing the Babylonians to judge them for their sin. He, he gets that. But he's really saying to God, look at them. They're worse than us. I know that we failed you, but they make us look like Mother Teresa. These, this nation is a nation of thugs. What on earth are you doing? How can you, metaphorically, climb onto them as a horse and ride them into battle? They're more wicked than we are. Why do you tolerate them? Why, how can you stay silent while they smash people who are more righteous than they are. He talks in verse 14, he said, he talks about being like fish in the sea. The picture that comes to his mind is, Lord, we just feel like we're like helpless fish in the sea and there's this great big ship on the top of the ocean with a great big net that just sweeps through the sea, catching us all. There's nowhere to hide. There's no favoritism shown. The righteous and the unrighteous get swept up by the Babylonians. They just flatten everything in their anger. And the net shows no mercy. What is more, the fisherman worships his net. He thinks he's God. Surely, God, you can't do this. You're too holy. Your people are too helpless and the enemy is too arrogant. What on earth are you doing? 
Do you get the kind of drama? Well, what's God's answer to this second question or complaint? God's answer is, Habakkuk, don't worry. Because I will crush the crusher. Look at what God says in chapter 2 about Babylon. Verse 4. Look, see, Babylon is puffed up. His desires are not right. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. He is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive of all the peoples. Babylon is puffed up, mixed up, drugged up, wound up and never quite full up. God then goes on to give five woes. Verse 6, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and so it goes on through the chapter Five woes, theft, exploitation, violence, drunken shame and idolatry. It's not a bad summary of what we read in the newspaper, is it? Habakkuk's problem was, how could God send an evil nation like this against his own people? Did this somehow mean that God enjoyed it? Or was God on the side of the evil ones? God's answer reveals to Habakkuk, no, God knows exactly what Babylon is. All of Babylon's random kind of chaotic behavior is not chaos to God. God despises them. But the point is, God, the sovereign Lord, is utterly in control. Babylon is nothing to him. He is the one who rules over the nations. And in his incredible wisdom, he turns all that those evil nations can do and uses it for his own purposes. They think they're God... But they're not in charge. The Lord is in charge. They're like an angry dog on a leash. And God allows them to bark and bite and snarl. But he's the one holding the lead. You get that? I'm raising them up. God is saying to Habakkuk, listen Habakkuk, I haven't lost a plot. I'm working out my plans and purposes despite all the evil chaos in the world. They seem terrifying to you, but their time will come because they're not in charge. I am. I wish we had more time to um, explore the idea of God using a wicked nation to discipline his own people. It's interesting that God uses the arrogant evil of the Babylonians to discipline the arrogance and evil of his own people. 
There's something here about God allowing wickedness to be its own enemy. It's like the effects of sin become its own judgment. God kind of leaves his people to their choices and gives them over to the consequences of their own wicked behavior. As a nation, they've forsaken God and the result is that they reap devastation. I wish we had more time to talk about that. It doesn't mean that everyone in the nation of Judah was evil. But what it does mean is that everyone in that nation, the righteous and the unrighteous, is caught up in the steamroller of the Babylonian Empire. Now remember, these tragic events haven't happened yet. And God is giving Habakkuk prophetic insight into what is about to happen. And he's saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to crush the crusher. So I just want to point you to the first part of God's answer. Because here, God gives Habakkuk some clues as to how he can move from worry to worship. In verse 2 of chapter 2, then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. The essence of God's answer to Habakkuk is, I want you to write and I want you to wait. You get that? Write this down. I'm telling you what's going to happen before it happens. And it might linger. It might be delayed. But what I tell you to write will surely happen. Write it down and then wait for it. In chapter 2, it's a chapter of woe. All the way through chapter 2. And yet, there are three stars that shine in the midst of all that sadness. And I want to uh, just show you them. We'll start with the last one and we'll work back to the first one. The first one is found in the very last verse of chapter 2, verse 20. And I've entitled this, God's throne is secure. Right there, and there's a little star shining in this sad sky. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What God's saying to Habakkuk is, these Babylonians, they seem fierce and wicked and ridiculously oppressive to you. But God cannot be knocked off his throne by anyone. They're not in charge. God is in charge. Secondly, if you go back to verse 14, there's another little star in this sad sky there. Not only is God's throne secure, but God's glory will prevail. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, God says to Habakkuk and through Habakkuk, not only is God's throne secure, 
But this trouble will not last forever. God's glory will again one day fill the whole earth like the ocean. His throne is secure and evil will not prevail. God's glory will prevail. That's a good start. And the third star is verse 4. God's grace is sufficient. How are the righteous to live in the light of all of that reality and struggle and pain? The answer is Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. Isn't it interesting that, that God says to Habakkuk, write it down and then wait for it. We live in days like Habakkuk lived in. And God has said in history, write it down and wait. The righteous will live by faith. God's throne is secure. God's glory will prevail. And the righteous will navigate their way through this broken world by faith. So that brings us to the key verse. And we've just got a few minutes to uh, finish off. I want you to get to verse 4 of chapter 2. Now, I often say to you, when we talk at the Bible, I'm not just making things up. You know, this is really important for you to know this. I'm not just putting a slant on this. The reason that we can interpret the book of Habakkuk like this is because the writers in the New Testament quote from it. So I'm not just putting a spin on this. And they quote from it in three places. And we're going to talk about two of them because there's two ways that they quote it. One of them is very obvious. And the other one is a little bit more subtle. So let's... Um, the righteous will live by faith. The first thing that I want to say is that this phrase is talking about perseverance or enduring. And that's the obvious meaning. So just wait with me in your imagination. Put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes. He lives in 600 BC. He's very worried about the sin and failure of the country that he lives in. He prays to God and God says, I'm going to judge them by sending a very powerful enemy to flatten the whole country. And Habakkuk says... How on earth can you do that, God? And God says, I'm in charge. And I'm going to crush Judah, and then I'm going to crush the crusher. Write it down and wait for it. How is Habakkuk going to endure the next period of time? He's living in days when he knows that the Babylonians are coming. How is he going to move from worry to worship? The only thing he has is God's promise. Write it down and wait. He has no explanation really. What he has is God's promise. How do you carry on when everything seems upside down? How do you carry on when you feel like screaming as Habakkuk did? How can you survive when the Babylonians are coming? Only by trusting God's promises. In chapter 3, Habakkuk makes one of the most stunning statements of faith 
that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Just look with me at chapter 3 and verse 16. When Habakkuk hears God's answer, he, he says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And just listen to these words. Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to go up on the heights. Can you get where Habakkuk's come from and where he's going? Whatever the future holds, whatever I'm caught up in as a result of God's purposes in this world, even if I end up with nothing... I will still worship him. I'll rejoice in the Lord. His throne is secure. His glory will prevail in the end. The righteous will live by faith. I think that's very powerful. Even if the enemy comes and does their worst and I lose everything, I know that God is still in control and nothing happens outside of his gear. So I will not give in to fear, but I will rejoice and worship him. Part of the issue with worry, and I know this in my own experience, is that little question, what if? What if this happens? What if that happens? And, and if you're anything like me, the what if, you persuade yourself that it already has happened, and then there's another bigger what if after that one, and before you know it, you can't even get out of bed. Because all the things you dream about happening have already happened. And worry is all about control, isn't it? I want to feel that these things are not going to happen and that I'm in control. I don't want to feel at the mercy of events. The answer to that is not to try to be God and control everything because we can't. The answer is to know that nothing surprises him and that he's in control. And even even if the worst comes to the worst, God is still king and life is not random chaos. The issue is that the righteous are to live by faith. Warren Wiersbe says, Christian people do not live by explanations, but by promises. I think that's a great quote. This verse is quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 10. And the writer there is encouraging weary Christians to not give up and to keep going. I don't know whether you're weary this morning. Maybe you feel... I've had enough of being a Christian. It's too hard. I'm going to jack it in. 
Listen to what the writer to Hebrews says. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So that when you've done the will of God. You will receive what he has promised. For. In just a little while. He who is coming. Will come. And will not delay. And my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. But to those who have faith and are saved. That is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2. There may be a delay. Things may be very hard. You may be tempted to give up because things are so tough. But don't give up. He who is coming will come. The righteous are to live by faith. God's throne is secure. His glory will prevail. The righteous are to live by faith. The way to endure and navigate through a sin-spoiled world is to trust in God's, in God's sovereign control. He is the Lord. And he is very near. To his broken hearted people. But that's not the only place that Habakkuk's quoted. The second place is. Romans chapter 1. Which Ian read to us very well. Thank you. I chose Romans chapter 1 because of the fact that Paul quotes Habakkuk here but the emphasis here is very different this is not about perseverance this is about salvation itself this is what transformed Martin Luther Martin Luther was another man who struggled and grappled and was asking God questions Martin Luther's question and maybe this is your question was this God how on earth can I be righteous? I know that I'm a sinner. No one needs to tell me that. But how can I be right with you when I know in my heart that I'm so wrong? Martin Luther tried very hard to be righteous. He even became a monk and a preacher. But he had no peace. In his heart. All the while. He'd been looking. At himself. And finding nothing there. But failure. He was worried. How did he move from worry. To worship. He saw. That Paul gave him the answer. By quoting Habakkuk. The righteous. Will live. By faith how can I be made righteous Martin Luther asked 
by keeping rules by trying my best no by faith let me make this personal what Paul is saying in Romans is that Jesus is the great sin crusher Jesus is the one who has been sent by God into this world to save people like you and me in a way we're victims of sin on our way to a bleak future separated from God and God in his great mercy sends Jesus to live the perfect life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve to die what Martin Luther saw was this righteousness is not found in us it is a gift from God to us it is a gift that we desperately need because we don't have any righteousness of our own and how does it come to us? By faith. The righteous will live by faith. When you trust, when you stop looking at you and trying hard to find righteousness of your own, when you stop doing that and look to Jesus and realise that he gives it to you, all of it, then you're alive. The righteous will live by faith. This is the great and radical news in the Bible. The Bible is not moralizing us and telling us to pull our socks up. The Bible is pointing us to Jesus, who is our Savior. Righteousness comes to us not by what we do. It doesn't come by our cleverness or by our own effort. It comes to us through Jesus and his goodness. Are you worried about your standing before God? How can you move from worry to worship? The righteous will live by faith. By believing in Jesus, you will have eternal life. Jesus is the great sin crusher. Isn't it incredible that God has written that into history in the Old Testament and that it all points to Jesus? The implication of this, surely, when we go back to chapter 2, God said to Habakkuk, write it down and wait for it. We've touched on it already. How do we move from worry to worship? By relying on what God has given us, His Word, His promises. His truth. It was written down and Habakkuk was told to wait. How can you move from worry to worship? By committing yourself to believing and trusting God's written words. That will be your salvation and it will be how you can endure. And the implication of that has surely got to be that the most important thing we can do is to build our lives around God's promises and God's word. That's, it. That's why it's so crucial that we gather on a Sunday around the Bible. That's why we have growth groups. That's why we encourage people to read the Bible at home to check whether I'm not making it up or whether I am. Sorry. 
It's also why we preach the gospel of Jesus to everyone we can. Because how will people believe if they haven't heard? And how will people hear if no one tells them? I received a photograph this morning, about 8 o'clock this morning. I was just like doing a bit of prep. This is uh, Paul Boothby, who's a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And the lady stood on his right. It's a lady called Agnes. She's an older lady who delights to hear the word of God. This week, Paul's been ill. And he didn't turn up for a Bible class that he was going to lead with Agnes. And do you know what Agnes did? She walked 45 minutes up the mountain to where Paul and Susan live to check why he'd not been the day before to teach her the Bible as he normally does on a Monday. He'd been sick during the night and they did send word but it hadn't reached. This lady's daughter died the week before and she was worried that she would miss the sweetness of God's word so she walked 45 minutes to check why he hadn't come. Write it down and wait for it. It might delay, but it will surely come. Can I ask you, does the Bible sit at home on a shelf gathering dust? Would we walk 45 minutes because the preacher hadn't turned up and wanted to know where he was? You'd give me a ring now, wouldn't you? <laughs> Do we take God's word that seriously? Do we build our lives around it? The righteous will live by faith. One of the most interesting things about Habakkuk is his name. It's very hard to translate his name. It could mean grappling. And that sums him up in a way. He was a man who wrestled honestly with his questions about God and life and the world and trouble but the name could also mean embracing. And that, in a way, sums him up too. That he embraced God's word and promise to him. He grappled and he embraced. God didn't explain everything to him. But he reassured him that he was the sovereign Lord. And that evil would not ultimately prevail. How can you navigate through this world... By trusting in God's eternal promises. So let me ask you this morning. Do you believe in God? Do you believe his word? And do you trust in Jesus to save you? And to forgive you? And to give you his righteousness? So that you can stand before him. In peace and with joy. Amen.